One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 81 of Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything, we mean simply everything, even the most unexpected of subjects, has a history, like pockets, relics and flatulence. Aunts, uncles, sons, daughters, grandparents, kin of all sorts. Ah, that's where we're going to go after this one. Ah, it is. We will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of milk, this came to me in a flash uh, just a minute ago, is in fact all about racism. It's about boxes and apparently it's about security. Yeah, because you found a milk thermometer in a historic box a, in Powderham Castle, a didn't you? A floating milk thermometer Whatever that is. in a historic box in Powderham Castle and it's all about breastfeeding mm. and imbibing the characteristics of uh, the... The, the person whose milk you are imbibing. Uh, so hence the fear of foreign wet nurses. But you will have to wait for another mm. day to listen to that. Um, or the history of coffee. Who knew that the history of coffee was about gossip and news, politics, addiction and pleasure. Oh, and so we're told, cancer. Which is also the history of toast and roast potatoes. <laughs> it's also to do with milk as well, obviously. Yes. I can't, wait, I can't wait to do those. I've got to think of something sensible to do. say about milk. I'm already panicking. No, no. Lots on milk. Lots on milk. The man Milk of sitting, human kindness. The, the milk of human kindness. Yeah. Let me introduce you. Okay. The man sitting opposite me is the Marconi of long-distance historical communication. It's <laughs> Professor James Daybell. You are mining a theme. I am. You? My inventor's You're mining theme. <laughs> I'm particularly inventors. proud of that one. Uh, hello, Sam. That's that's very imaginative and, and touching. Um, and the man sitting opposite me is the abbot of historical action. It is the truly wonderful, famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Right. So each week we uh, come up with a theme we discuss. Sometimes James thinks of them. Sometimes I think of them. This one, I rather put my foot down because um, I am away in China a lot filming for my new series for National Geographic. And something struck me and I said, Daybell, I sent you a text. I said, Daybell, we must do motherhood. We must do the history of the mother. And I unfortunately, I, I walked into the Daybell trap because yes. you know an enormous amount about motherhood. So, Well, well, <laughs> I do. So you should all be reading uh, Women's History Review uh, 2015, uh, Social Negotiations in Correspondence oh. Between Mothers and Daughters in Tudor and Early Stuart England. Should you be suffering uh, Can we from... give that a better title? Should you be what unable... It, what was it? I, I'm useless at... I'm... <laughs> No, 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 no. So you're only going to letters Mickey, between Mickey, mums and daughters. You're only going to Mickey take. I won't Mickey take. Um, it, should you be finding it hard to sleep 
uh, of an evening, of a night. Um, I heartily recommend this. It's brilliant, well written. Um, it's it's fascinating. So that is an article written this by is you. An article and it, written about... by me about. So it's about the relationship between mothers and daughters in Tudor, um, in Tudor, Tudor and Stuart England, as evidence as evidenced by correspondence. Cool. Um, so it has a huge survey of the field and the literature, and then it uses. Uh, letters between mothers and daughters to examine that particular relationship within a uh, a historical period Um, and look at the role of the... I suppose it's the role of of the mother, the kind of relationship mothers have with their daughters, you know, all of that kind of thing. And I will will return to that. I think the... You know, one of the things that I think is really interesting is to... is how do you unlock this sort of concept of the mother across time yeah is that is it something that is there something that is sort of biologically um con- continual in being a mother or is that something that it, that is sort of culturally shifted across time it can be approached from a historical point of view psychologists get you know super super excited about this, the mother, you know, the Oedipus complex, the male, the boy's son's relationship with a the mother. Um, there's, I was googling the other day uh, on, well, searching through Amazon for sort of um, images of, of front covers of books about motherhood, and the number of books about the complexity of relationships between mothers and daughters. This kind of very sort of negative, sort of conflict-ridden relationship is is quite extraordinary. Mm. I remember a fairly eminent history professor who I will not name, we were talking about uh, family. I'd gone to give a paper and we were talking about family. And I was sort of saying, oh, I have young, young daughters. And he said, you know, he had he had teenage daughters. And we were sort of, you know, reminiscing about how lovely they were. Um, and the thing he said was that um, he got on really well with his daughters, his teenage daughters, but his wife was having all sorts of tr- trouble with them. And, you know, there is, there is acute conflict often between mothers and daughters. And what's interesting is why, in a historical sense, trying to explain why that happened. Yeah. Um, structurally, why that happened. And that's something that this article that I wrote tries to do. You know, because if you think about the role of a mother, the mother has a, a very important role in upbringing. So you bring up a child or you educate a child in a particular way to behave in a particular way. And that in itself sows the seeds of conflict later on, ah. because you are chal- you're constantly challenging. So there are levels of history. There, there are level, levels of history. So so this is constantly sort of challenging uh, your daughter's you know sense of herself. Um, so you will immediately come into into conflict with a with personality, and you pop into that other kind of structural things about about marriage and marriage arrangement and domestic roles and education systems and suddenly you see this relationship between two people in a much broader context also within a context of a family so i mean that's it's amazing anyway. it seems to me like a real key into well a, a very sort of effective tool of public history yes because i always think that when you're trying to get people interested in history, starting off with something they know is always a really a good way of doing it. And one of the things that I think are most acutely felt by people is a human relationship with with a sibling, with a parent, yep. whatever. Yep. Um, but that the mother-son, mother-daughter relationship is obviously very powerful. And then you can yep. demonstrate how that might have been the same in the past, how it might have been different in the past, yep. and all of the yep. different cultural factors affecting how relationships pan yep. out. Yeah. I mean, think about think about the way in which 
we and think about this also across life cycle certain cultures the the mother uh, would remain a dominant figure within the household would turn into a grandmother and would be in an extended family living in the same house yeah you know, whereas we in modern day Western cultures, um, people would be much more likely to live separate from their mothers. And so the relationship there would be very different. So grandmothers aren't normally resident within the, the, the household of a nuclear of a nuclear family. So structurally, that that's very different. Yeah. Um, also, you think about it in very sort of commonsensical terms, and everyone assumes that the mother and motherhood has particular sort of loving, caring, nurturing characteristics that the mother is a very positive figure and absolutely yes my mother is glorious and wonderful and blah 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 nonetheless hello mum hello mum hello mum <laughs> love you mum um daybells and willis's mum yes, should meet exactly they should they should meet i think they'd get on hmm. um i've never met your mother uh, you've never mum met gets my on with everyone um, my mother gets on well with everyone <laughs> uh she was a primary teacher uh so you know very nurturing uh soul tremendous woman However, um, there are, you know, there are often sort of seeds of conflict laid into all interpersonal relationships. What I found interesting there, we were talking about the structure of who lives with who, right? What's expected yes. within a family, whether you live with the mother. And this is what got me into the, in the whole, in the first place. Yes. So last week, I was somewhere called Banpo. Have you heard of Banpo? I have now. Bampo is right. It's just outside Xi'an, which is one of the ancient capitals of China, um, just off the Yellow River Valley. It's in like the heartland of ancient China. And uh, Bampo is an archaeological site, and it's about 6,000 years old. Yep. It's staggeringly old. They discovered the Bampo historical site when they were doing some excavation, and rather sort of typical the way that Chinese discover their archaeology during construction. Um, and they were they were building some kind of massive tower block, and they found this site, which was which was ancient. Anyway, I was looking at some of the relics, and I particularly looked at this one. Ah, can you so describe this that? This is a sculpture of a head with sort of eyes, nose, mouth. Uh, some sort of indentations for hair that I can see ears yep. and a sort of um, an elongated swollen neck, swollen neck body and then a big a big body yeah a so big... is that a sort of maternity there you go there's another, another oh it's it. tiny it's tiny it's in your hand yeah it's like a little sort of um, it's a jug porcelain weeble it's a jug it looks like a porcelain weeble. Yes. Um, so you fill it a up at the larger. back. You fill it up. If you imagine having a hole at the top of your spine, Ooh, you fill lovely. it up there and all of the water sits into the swollen tummy and then you pour it and it comes out of the eyes and mouth. Hmm. It's an extraordinary thing. And you're wearing white gloves. Um, I am wearing white gloves to, to hold that uh, particular relic. It was um, stunning. Uh, one, of, one of the most beautiful so archaeological archeolo- about... objects. Well, no. Right. No. There's another uh, so link. There, there is, this is part of it, okay? Um this site in China has become famous, as the Chinese would have us believe, as a location for a matriarchal society. Um, we love a matriarchal we society. We love a matriarchal society. Yes. So um, just very briefly, that is a society in which women held some measure of power. Yes. Uh, more so than a patriarchal society where the men yes. hold the power. Yes. Now, what's really interesting about this is that the idea that, the idea that an ancient past consisted of certain societies where matriarchy was common and prevalent is actually um, an idea that was first suggested by Engels. It's a communist theory for the development of modern society and the necessity for revolution. And it's all to do with property. It's immensely complicated. But it's why the Chinese 
are really interested in it. So if you go to the Bampo Museum, you are told how this was a matriarchal society. It was a kind of form, sort of, it was a it was a society in which it was like proto-communism. Everything was shared. There was no ownership of material. So the idea of patriarchy, of everything going through a man's line um, and uh, from a man to his sons and so on, didn't exist. Now, Engels, who was also writing, was based on Marxist theory, he believed that this there was this kind of utopia society based around matriarchy, which happened before men started taking control and then owning property, which then had to pass down to their sons. And that ownership of property then yep. leads to capitalism, and then you need to have a revolution. So the entire theory of communism is built around the need to have a matriarchal society at the beginning of it. Okay. So if you go to the Bampo Historical Museum, because mm. it, it, it makes sense for the Chinese and they, they need to, to it, it basically helps them establish their authority, the party's authority in China, for saying this is a matriarchal society, the way that it's interpreted is purely along these lines. Right. Even though the historical and archaeological evidence, or the archaeological evidence, doesn't necessarily support it. So um, Bampo was discovered in the 1950s when this communist idea of uh, matriarchy was most prevalent in archaeology. But right. now it's been rewritten by Western archaeologists primarily, and some Chinese archaeologists to say, look, there's actually no evidence at all that women were in charge here, that it was a matriarchy, that resources were, were shared. So, but is the idea that <coughs> is the idea behind a matriarchy then that it's a much fairer society, that it's something to do with, with the figure of the mother? Yep. Fairer, a, more peaceful, yep, yep. less violent, um, yes. and, and just generally better um but yes. it, and what what i what really struck me about it was the way that all of the interpretive boards in the museum were this is the, one of the early matriarchal societies early neolithic matriarchal societies of china everyone lived in this kind of proto communist society where everything was lovely and it was kind of like ut- utopia and there was nothing anywhere to suggest that the whole thing was essentially made up because it suited their theory of of the way that societies develop. And I was fascinated by that. And so when I was given this relic, when I started yes. off with, then the, 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 the curator was like, this is clearly a pregnant woman. Yes. I was like, it doesn't look it. It might be, but it might not be. How do you know that? Um, and then I said, you know, you start asking them questions. How do you actually know that this was a, was, was a matriarchal society? And they don't. Mm. But it just it it feeds into this this need to understand the world in that way. So that's what got me interested in mothers and the structure of societies, whether it was a woman in charge of the society, whether yeah, yeah. motherhood happened, and it was all to do with passing it down through the mother's line, not the father's, and sharing property. Extraordinary, mm, but I very, had I, very extraordinary. I had no idea. Very extraordinary. Yeah. So for me, motherhood is all about medals. Mm. Um, the type you pin on your and your uniform. or a type that you wear around your around your neck, an it's award, con- and it's con- an award, and it's connected to Nazi Germany. Huh. So I remember back in the back in the day when I was doing A levels many many years ago and reading all sorts of things about uh, the family and, and and society and particularly about Hitler's plans for the Aryan race and the way in which the figure of the mother became incredibly important for breeding the new race, the, ah. the sort of the Aryan race. So women were treated almost as these exalted citizens and encouraged to have as many children as possible. And 
within a within a society like that, within a system like that, the mother is often the key linchpin for the promotion of particular ideas because she is important for upbringing. So a lot of the ideas, the way in which a child is brought up is sort of transmitted through the mother. So what you do, you lift the mother up in in a particular sort of exalted way, pop her on a plinth and feed her all sorts of indoctrination to bring up a good Nazi uh, family. And there were a there was a cross cross of honour of the German mother wow. uh, that was awarded to mothers who had a number of children. So a bronze cross for four children, mm-hmm. a silver cross for six children, and a gold cross for eight children and above. And it's not just in Nazi Germany. This also happened. This is amazing. This also no happened in Russia, uh, where they have the Order of Maternal Glory. Uh, which Stalin brought in in on the 8th of July, 1944. And again, it's about a state trying to you know, socially engineer the nation. It also happened in France uh, in, I think, the, the sort of 1920s, uh, the Médaille de la Famille Française, which is a similar sort of idea. Um, back to Nazi Germany, this sort of cult of, of motherhood, there were millions of women who received such awards, such awards, such medals. And you think about the impact that this then has on the nation. Have we got, what's the, if you are, we know, sorry, do, do we know historical sources? We've got kind of lists of them or photographs. We have, of we them have, we've got photographs of them. We've got, we've got examples of this. We've also, which is what I'm going to come on to, got letters from women who did not receive them. Hmm. So behind this is the idea that basically if you are involved in a or about to go into a major land war in, in, in Europe, you want the next generation of soldiers and functionaries to sort of be bred and controlled in this particular way. That's the sort of rationale behind all this. Um, you give them these medals. And as I said, there are these letters that survive from women who did not fit this model of uh, the ideal okay. Aryan. And what, what's, I mean, I think what's interesting in this, there's always a question about with any kind of social engineering, whether you think about, you know, medieval or early modern or 18th century uh, gender codes that ask women to behave in a particular way and shape them. One can look at these kinds of codes and think that they are pretty draconian, they're very patriarchal, and how can women possibly have sort of, you know, have obeyed in this kind of way, behaved in this kind of way, and shaped them? And they are a sort of very ideologically, they're a very stifling form of tyranny. Yeah. Because, you know, while you exalt the mother figure, it it's something that is it, that is very limiting, very constraining. You you put somebody in a very close sort of domestic sphere. Um, but what is interesting is the way, the degree to which women internalise these. And for some of these German women, they were just gutted that they didn't receive these awards. And we have a, a series of, of these letters. Um, a woman wrote in May 1941, Dear Gauleiter Kaufmann, have I been forgotten? I have had eight children and am pregnant again. I have not received my golden cross. My mother-in-law says this is a great shame, and my husband was violent towards me today because of this. Please help. Another wrote, um, we're really not criminals, wrote a mother of 11 to a Gauleiter in Saxony. Another read, am I and my children not as good as others? A 60-year-old mother of 20 
penned, I have already applied twice for the cross and until today have not received a reply. You know, I want this. This is my desire. Yeah. I mean, what 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 is fascinating about this is the way in which the tentacles of the Nazi state can reach out and indoctrinate people, buy them into this this system. And it's it's the sort of fusion of it's the fusion of the sort of study of of Nazi society um, ideas and sort of social social teachings and social control. Anyway, there we are. It's all about medals. Amazing. It just struck me as well that we, um, when we were thinking about doing our unexpected history of the Tudors book, yes. we were doing a chapter which uh, it was on the face, face or faces, Ooh. wasn't it? And we did something on portraits of oh, portraits of pregnant women, pregnant yes. women, portraits, mothers. Yeah, and I'm looking at one here, which is the portrait of Catherine Knowles. They are 1524 to January 1569. And it's one of these um, extraordinary images where she is clearly pregnant. She's wearing a magnificent coat um, embroidered with, with, with gold thread, it look like, looks like, and then, a, and then a belt which sits sort of perfectly on, on the top of her bump next to a little dog. Karen Hearn, who was, I don't know where she is now, but was curator at the Tate, has done a lot of work on on. These on that particular image and also right. other pregnancy portraits. I thought that was, you know, maybe a sort of an individual example, but it turns out that there are actually quite a few yeah. of these. So she was pregnant at least six times in eight years between 1542 and 1550. And it makes sense because it's all to do with blood bloodline. Yeah. It's it's the yep. promise of, of the Knowles's carrying yep. on, isn't it? Yep. It's a particularly proud moment to I mean, be captured. If you look at the experience of women pre-contraception, mm. one of the biological constants of a woman's life is that she would be regularly pregnant so you have large families you know you have sex and you know that is an important part of a sustaining a relationship the biological impact of that is that you are regularly pregnant a lot of the women that i study and i've been a historian of gender for i mean across my career and one of the one of the things that I never really get over is the women that I write about, a lot of their adult life has been spent either pregnant yeah. and the impact that that has, or looking after lots of children that constantly around. And, and it's sometimes very difficult when I used to work on politics and you look at some of the women who are very active in Elizabeth's court. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And either they are active because they are unable to have children and that they're very, you know, that gives them some kind of degree of independence. But nonetheless, because socially it's so important for women of that kind of aristocratic background to have children, what that does to a, to a woman is really is really difficult. Or they are women who have who are at court but have phenomenally large families. Okay. Of course they're armed with sort of groups of servants who look who look after them. But nonetheless there is that kind of biological kind of constant women are very physically put into that role of being a mother i mean i've studied i've studied all sorts of examples of this and there are all sorts of sources that one might use we talked earlier on about correspondence and that's a great resource there are manuals for uh mothers how to sort of how, bring, to, be how, how to be a mother how to bring up children and that's something that you can map across time you can have a look at again. You can have a look at things like household accounts. There are manuals to be a midwife as well. We've looked at one Mid, of the midwife Jane Sharp's the yeah, mid, yeah. midwife's manual, and so we can think about the. You can think about the the role of a mother from a biological perspective, and you can think about that in terms of childbirth, conception, the childbed, giving birth, uh, and then and then across this. We've looked at. We've done an episode on childhood, and you can look at. The mother across the sort of life cycle of the of the the children and the yeah. different roles that and that, that early she relationship plays. is interesting. Here's a quote from Queen Victoria um, on an infant, you know, a newborn baby. I like them better than I did if they are nice and pretty. Abstractedly, I have no tender for them till they have become a little human. An ugly baby is a very nasty object, and the prettiest is frightful when undressed until about four months. In short, as long as they have their big body and little limbs and that terrible frog-like action. <laughs> I mean the thing the thing also mother is, of nine children if you <laughs> but if you think about the if you think about motherhood today you know mothers are very constant around around a child we no longer have wet nurses and you know nursery maids and a whole sort of series of of staff who will you know look after and and basically become barriers between the mother one of the things that bonds mothers and children is is breastfeeding and it's that kind of close contact it's skin to skin it's and that i think that is so important in forming that kind of bond if you look in other cultures and societies where wet nurses are used that doesn't take place and whether with victoria with with a, with a monarch immediately there are cultural intrusions into that her children would be taken away from her she has a very public role there'd be an army of governesses nurses etc that would remove children culturally within victorian society the attitude towards children is very different so the role of the mother and the mother's relationship is very different from today yeah there are some amazing sort of little little case studies the pastons the paston family we've oh, talked yeah. about the paston letters in the past the uh, wars of the roses wars of the roses they, yeah. wars of the roses um and if you are interested well in this, known for writing well, just well, huge huge amounts well, of material well known, their, their correspondence survives yeah and you can get it in little edited, modernised volumes, and you can also get it in great scholarly 
sort of original spelling um, volumes. But there's some beautiful stories that go through that. One of the sort of big themes is about conflict between mothers. So this is to return to what I was talking about at the outset, this conflict between mothers and daughters. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is around marriage because marriage was so central to family success and basically placing a daughter in a in a good match was advantageous both to her but also to the family that she was leaving and then there's an example of Agnes Paston who's the sort of matriarch of the family falling out with her daughter Elizabeth who she just is finding great difficult to marry off and somebody writes to Elizabeth Paston's brother urging him to find a suitor for his sister because the mother is just being awful to her. And there's a description here. Because she, Elizabeth, cannot speak to anyone whosoever may visit, nor see or speak to my servant, nor servants of her mother, unless she is deceptive about her intentions. And since Easter, she has for the most part been beaten once or twice a week, and sometimes twice in one day, and her head has been broken in two or three places. Wow. History is full of mothers who have been physically violent yeah. to their daughters. Gosh. Sorry, a lot, you know, a lot of um, emotions running high, basically, with this, yes. this whole history of motherhood. Who, yes. Who knew? Um, there's another letter here from Queen Victoria, um, and she's writing to one of her daughters, telling her to tell another of her daughters, Alice, how unpleasant um, giving birth and becoming a mother would be. Let me caution, dear child, again, to say as little as you can on these subjects, meaning pregnancy, yeah. before Alice, who has already heard much more than you ever did, for she has the greatest horror of having children and would rather have none. Just as when I was a girl when I first married, so I am very anxious she should know as little about the inevitable miseries as possible. So don't forget, dear. <laughs> passing on a sort of maternal advice. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things that if you have a look through correspondence and the kinds of records that survive that speak about motherhood, one of the key roles that you find mothers doing is giving advice, passing on information and mm. wisdom like that. When we looked at recipes, we looked at the transmission of recipes and the transmission of know-how. That's and true. No, we have one my wife was passed down. From was passed down, yeah. yeah. But also the way in which certain kinds of information about the family, uh, information about how to bring up a house. All of that is taught through a mode of transmission that comes from mothers to daughters. I feel that we've been going, we've been fairly negative about the role of the mother in historical time and the way we've talked about sort of what you'd see as bad mothers, violent mothers. We've talked about conflict. There's one example that I want to share with you. Uh, one of my favourite historical figures a woman called Anne Clifford, diarist, mm -hmm. uh, who's the daughter of the Earl of Cumberland and her mother, uh, Margaret Clifford. And she is basically written out of the will of her father, doesn't inherit the family estate and goes on for the rest of her life trying to sort of claw it all back. But she has an immensely close relationship, not only with her own mother, but also with her own daughters. Yep. And one of the things that I'm always fascinated about in the work that I do is kind of uncovering those kind of detailed emotional relationships between characters. One of the interesting questions is, to what extent were mothers interested in their children 
in the 16th and 17th century? What roles did they play? What kind of in, you know interest did they have in it? And she's left several diaries, and we have some snippets from uh, a diary written between 1616 and 1619, which talk about her daughter Margaret, who was born on the 2nd of July, 1614. And what you see is a kind of, this is a mother who, yes, an aristocratic mother, there would have been servants and wet nurses and governesses and blah, 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 blah. But she nonetheless is deeply invested in her daughter. When her daughter's ill, she has her into her own bed. So you can actually get, you know, right into the sort of minutiae of her her life. Um, And I'll just read you some extracts here. About five o'clock in the evening, my lord, in other words, her husband and I and the child, went in the great coach to Northampton House, where my lord treasurer and all the company commended her. And she went down into my lady Walden's chamber, where my cousin Clifford saw her and kissed her. But I stayed with my lady Suffolk. So even there, you've got her going off on a what is a sort of formal visit. The daughter, the young daughter, is accompanying her. Upon the 22nd, the child had her sixth fit of the ague in the morning. So she's basically fitting from uh, from a high temperature. Mr. Smith went up in the coach to London to my lord, to whom I wrote a letter to let him know in what case the child was. The same day my lord came down. And then a few days later, the same day the child put on her red baize coats. Upon the 25th, I spent most of my time in working and in going up and down to see my child. About five or six o'clock, the fit took her, which lasted six or seven or even seven hours. Upon the 4th, should have been the child's fit, but she missed it. Upon the 6th, the child had a grudging of her egg again at night. Upon the 12th, the child had a better fit of her egg again, insomuch I was fearful of her that I could hardly sleep all night, so I beseeched God Almighty to be merciful to me and spare her life. So you've got, you know, you've got intimate detail. It goes on to talk about how later on her strings were cut. So you've got this idea mm. of reins being used yeah, yeah. And, and the sort of bringing up of a daughter. And I think it is entirely possible to reconstruct a mother's role in the upbringing of children. You know, and we're talking here about that's very easy to sort of think about in the modern day when there's so many manuals around and you know and practices all around, but in periods where and this is constantly the case, in periods where source material is so limited, such things that we think of in a sort of commonsensical way are so incredibly difficult to recreate. Yeah. I suppose the the other side of that is where where source material is is so prevalent, where there's so much. Of yes, it. yes. One one particular aspect of that we haven't got any time to go through it, but there is an amazing collection of letters written by child evacuees during the Second World War Ooh, back to their parents, oh and they're my brilliant. Gosh. They're absolutely brilliant. So you you get to know about what it was like as a child to then experience the countryside for the first time, different food, different people, changing relationships, having to maybe bond with someone who's like a surrogate mother because your mum's being yep. bombed in London. Yep. They're an absolute treasure trove for what's going on in the in the And missing in, your in mother. The 40s. And you know, straight being, up missing your mother. Yep, and, and also yep. the mothers missing the kids. But um if you if you're interested in the history of childhood and um you need something accessible but heartwarming and touching and also full of details. Look, I know there's a um, um, BBC did an archive of World War Two memories, but there are lots of different places where you can find letters written by child evacuees, and um, they they will make you they will make you feel better. <laughs> Brilliant. What more could we say? And hi, Mum, again. Hi, Mum. How are you doing? I hope you're listening. 
Thank you, everyone, apart from our mums. Is it just our mums who listen to this podcast? It I think it's just be. our mums, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, they won't be listening to this. All right, and the other half million of you. Thank you very much. Um, please leave a review on iTunes. Get in touch with us. Tell us your stories. Um, send us some photos. Send us some pictures so we can talk about some letters. I want to see some Check letters. out our website. Yes, historiesoftheunexpected.com. We've got a book coming soon. We've got some live dates coming soon. It's all getting quite exciting, isn't it's it? It's getting very exciting. Yeah. Uh, and you can follow us on Twitter. You can follow Sam at Dr. Sam Willis. You can follow me at James Daybell. You can follow Histories of the Unexpected Podcast on at Unexpected Pod. We are tremendously proud to be part of the excellent History Hit Network, home of Dan Snow's History Hit and other fantastic shows. That's it then, guys. Thanks a lot for listening. Bye. Bye. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.